0: Coming up on Venture Voice.
1: Half my life, I haven't been able to drink alcohol. So I would go into restaurants with my husband and, you know, you spend a lot of money for a good meal. And I was completely left out of the experience because my big choices for pairing beverages for what I was eating was like Coke or iced tea or sparkling water. And that really didn't add any value to the meal. If anything, sometimes it detracted. My husband could look at the wine list and there was fifty to to $100,000 worth of wine on the wine list. And they're putting all those resources into it. But for people who aren't drinking, they're putting absolutely no resources. And I was like, gosh, this is crazy. It honestly hit me one day. I was like, I was kind of messing around with some lavender. And I'm like, that would be really good with that chocolate that I had the other day. And I'm like, oh, that's it. You develop a soda, you develop a non alcoholic beverage that you compare with food that can be very elegant, sophisticated, and have a high price point, you know, so that the wait staff is incentivized to sell it they're happy that they have something like that and that people who aren't drinking can still feel special.
0: This is Greg Gallant with Venture Voice. I'm so excited to re-release this show from the archives with Sherelle Klaus, the founder of Dry Soda. When I interviewed her back in 2005, the interview you're about to hear, it was the first podcast she was ever on Her company, Dry Soda, basically a drink for anyone who can't have alcohol, someone who's pregnant, gave up alcohol for any reason, can have with dinner and have it still be sophisticated. She launched it less than a year ago. So you're hearing from someone who's got a really fledgling enterprise, uh, less than a year old. She'd already taken the West Coast by storm and was in the process of expanding nationwide and in the process of raising her first round of funding. Today, over 15 years later, dry soda can be found in restaurants and stores across the U.S. as well as internationally and online. I think this is a really fun interview to listen back and, again, just hear how today nationally distributed brands were one day started by somebody working in their kitchen with no experience in the industry they were jumping into. Listening back to this interview also reminded me of the importance of PR, public relations, getting your company in the news. It's funny, Cheryl talks about the importance of getting dry soda in magazines and really getting the word out. This was in 2005. It wasn't until later in 2009 that I launched my company, Muckrack, M-U-C-K-R-E-C-K, the PR software platform that now over 2,000 companies use to get all their PR, including a lot of major soda brands and other brands that you've heard of. So this is really full circle to me. i had even forgotten about that bit from the interview until I went back to listen to it in preparing for this re-release. Have fun and enjoy.
2: Sherelle, welcome to Venture Voice. Thank you. So, tell me about how you got started with your career. I know you started just majoring in poli-sci and then going into consulting. Tell me what that was like and, you know, if you had any kind of entrepreneurial streak back then or if you were just kind of, you know, taking it step by step.
1: Actually, yeah, I always had an entrepreneurial streak um, ever since I was a kid. I've had little companies here and there and some sort of, you know, powerful experiences as a kid selling stuff and understanding the power of that. I was nine and my parents decided to go buy Christmas wreaths in Oregon and we lived in in the valley. We actually lived on the other side of, we lived in a high desert. They went over to that valley and bought Christmas wreaths to come back and sell. And they asked me if I wanted to sell some and make money and I would make $3 a wreath. I said, sure. So we would go to these houses, but nobody was ever home. And I did that. I maybe hit four houses and I said, no, this isn't going to work. We're going to need to go where the people are. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I said, let's go to office buildings. So I started going from door to door to office buildings, and I sold so many Christmas wreaths, and I made a ton of money that year. And it dawned on me then that you just have to think. you got to think about where people are at, how do you get to them and and how do you sell to them. And so, you know it was that was my first experience, and I really it was really powerful for me of understanding that if you think a little bit more clear and try to target your market, then you can probably sell pretty well. But actually, my dream was to get into politics. And so I majored in political science and moved to washington, d c but really quickly recognized that I didn't want to be in politics. It was, going to be a, it was going to be too slow, too cumbersome, and it was not based on, you know, whether you're an entrepreneur, you're good or you're not good, and it's very clear really quickly. Well, in politics, it can be based on who your parents are or who you know or what the connections are. So I knew right away I didn't want to do that. But I did sort of still want to be in government in some way. So I actually started working as for an airport association and learning about how airports run, that kind of thing. And then I became a consultant on privatizing airports. So I thought that was kind of a unique opportunity to sort of bridge the gap between, you know, business and government was trying to privatize some of these government-owned airports. So that's what I did for several uh, years.
2: That sounds like a headache. Yeah, Privatizing it airports.
1: It, it was. And it the first one was Indianapolis Airport. And it didn't really take. I mean, it never, it hasn't, you know, we went through the whole process of private companies bidding on it and all that stuff. And it never, it really never took off. That whole concept of privatizing is not taken off like I thought it would.
2: So what was that like being in that role? You know, you'd already done some entrepreneurial things, or at least you'd felt the uh, excitement to being an entrepreneur. Was it just as exciting being a consultant, or was it different? No,
1: No, I mean, for me, it was interesting. And part of the reason I like being a consultant is I like to get into different industries and learn as much as possible. So that's basically the fun part about being a consultant, is that you kind of get a wide array of industries and expertise. And that's basically what I did because I was young, I was out of college, and it was just a really great opportunity to see different sort of things and sort of understand what your own strengths are. Because I think that's really important early in your career to understand what is it that you're good at and what aren't you good at. And then you can really sort of hone in and define your career a lot better. I mean, everybody knows that. So that part of being a consultant I absolutely loved. is just opening. I got to do lots of different kinds of things and learn a lot of different types. Mostly it was all within the airport industry, but there's a lot to that, you know. There's all the concessions and how do they make more money and just the operation side of it. So
2: Great. So how long did you do that for?
1: I would say probably five or six years. Yeah, I spent five or six years as a consultant. And then I had two children and stayed home with them for a couple of years. And then I think it was about two or three, three years into that, the internet, it was the late 90s and the internet things, you know, was coming around and I was absolutely fascinated with that from the very beginning of what this thing could be and and how it was going to work and what that meant um, as a person and really as a business person what that meant. So I recognized pretty instantly that the internet because at that time the internet didn't have much. I remember it was like Yahoo and porno sites, <laughs> and it was like, oh, what's you know what is this going to be? Um, but I you know a few years into it, I recognized that there was going to be a need for this target age group, for whatever reason, I decided this target age group needed something. They needed more than these little kitty sites and they needed something that was secured, but something that they had a lot more control over because most of the controlled sites were all sites that teachers had decided what sites should be on there or the parents. And I thought this would be a great opportunity for this age group to start sort of setting their own boundaries and coming up with stuff. So that was kind of, that was basically the premise behind Planet Squid which was the name of the company.
2: So planet Squid, and it was aimed at tweens the yeah, uh, 10 like to 14 the, year old yeah 8
1: to probably 8 to 14 year old and it was really great we had some sort of unique technology that we did it was a really you know neat site that kids had a lot of control over a little um sort of pre myspace.com there there was some of that but there was just a, you know they could control a lot of their environment which i thought was really exciting but we didn't have a clear revenue stream at that time advertising revenue was not acceptable back there so We did get a series A round, but then after that, the bubble burst and so did ours. (laughs) So, but that was, that was a really great learning experience for me. And I knew that I would never, ever try to start a company again that didn't have a clear revenue stream. But back then you could, I mean, that was what was crazy about all of that. And it sort of felt uncomfortable, but you're like, Hey, you know, if everybody else can do it, I can do it too. But it was really clear to me that when I started my next company, that it had to have a very clear revenue stream and I had to be totally passionate about it. Um, I mean, it was going to have to be something that I cared, that it was, was passionate for me. Because, you know, 10 to 13-year-olds in the internet space, I was not passionate about. It. I enjoyed it immensely, but I wasn't passionate about it. So,
2: Yeah, It seems hard to do a business that's aimed at people where you don't kind of fall in. You couldn't be a customer. Exactly. Like
1: that's a really good point. And my kids weren't customers at that time either. Whereas now, I have kids that are in that age group, and I really wish we had it for them. And maybe I'd be a little bit more interested in it now. But the internet was never a passion for me. I thought it was a fascinating business opportunity, but not a passion.
2: So what was that like when the bubble burst? A lot of people just kind of got so discouraged from that. I mean, it's got to be tough to close up a business after you've gotten to that point of raising a Series A.
1: Yeah, it was. It was very discouraging. And um, the interesting part was though, right away after the bubble, after we closed down that company, I was asked to be the president for the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs. And that was an organization that had been immensely helpful to me, absolutely beneficial and helpful. It brought together all these women in a really supportive, collaborative role. And we helped women get funding. You met other mentor-type women. You're able to find different service providers. And it was just a great opportunity to do it. And we did a lot of different teaching and you know, learning about running companies. And we got some really great speakers that did some amazing stuff. So that was when, when my company ended. I was kind of disappointed that I wouldn't be able to participate in that because that had been such an amazing help to me. But then I was asked to serve as the president of it which was great because then I got to kind of get back into it and and be helping other women that still had a, you know, had a good company and a good revenue streams and all that kind of stuff. So it was really, and that FWE helped women in high tech and biotech. So it's fairly specific that way, but it was, it was amazing. It was a lot of fun to be able to participate, but absolutely. When you have to shut down a company, it is, it is really difficult and you're sure that you're not sure you can ever do it again because it's just so, you know, you're, you know, fortunately we didn't have a lot of employees, so that helped. But still that, you know, losing investors money is never easy. (laughs) It's very difficult. I
2: can imagine. Yeah. You got through and now you've been through this fundraising process twice with that company. And we'll talk later on about with your current company. But uh, back to that point about the women's entrepreneurs group, what do you find as a woman raising money? Was it, do you think it was harder for, I mean, it's hard for everybody, but do you think it was harder for you being a woman to raise money? And also, you know, do you have to do it in a different way? Do you have to go to investors who funded other women what, what happened with that
1: well I think that's interesting that you asked that and one of the great things about FWE is one of the things that I think that women find is that they're sort of locked out of to some of the social circles that men are locked in that have access to which means they have access to a lot more investors um, and if you're sort of locked out of those social groups then you're at a disadvantage FWE changed that it really truly did and so I'd never felt at a disadvantage because I was able to access all the women that were in there. And really, and there was a lot of women angels. And then because they actually had a women's angel group back then called Seraph, And there was such a supportive environment that everybody was really willing to help everyone else out. And it was, you know, lots of introductions. And, and at the time, too, we found that a lot of the male led VC groups were really interested in participating. And they understood that the women are a great new, great new deal flow is coming through FWE. So I never experienced that, but I think that was because I was so involved with FWE. I was on the board at the time when my company was running and stuff. So I was so involved that I didn't experience any true difficulties, but that was because of FWE. Had I not had that, it would have been a lot more difficult. Absolutely.
2: So now you're running that group and you were helping, what, uh, tech and biotech you were saying with uh-huh. that?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was Yeah, women that started biotech and, and technology companies, high-tech companies.
2: So now with that resume, it doesn't sound like... You're the person who started Dry Soda.
1: <laughs> no, it's been interesting. I don't have beverage experience or food experience. But in the end, that is exactly why I think we've been as successful as we have been. Bringing, I do have a team, however, that has beverage experience. But there are so many rules to the beverage world and so much discouragement. Because believe me, when I started this company, lots of people said, oh, dear Lord, don't get into a beverage company. I, had, I knew a woman that had had a bottled water company, and, and I met her at FWE because then she had a high-tech company. And she said, don't do it. It was the worst experience of my life, you know, in the beverage industry. It's just all about distribution and it's very, very difficult. And I think if I had experienced all that, maybe I wouldn't have started a soda company. And, but I was able to break a lot of rules and be able to do a lot of things because I didn't know any better. So I could go and ask for things that maybe some other people that really knew about it wouldn't ask. And my, a lot of the investors agree with me now that maybe perhaps that's, you know, one reason why you can be successful. And granted, you do need some experiences, which is where my team comes in. But for me to be able to really... I'm building a brand here. And that's what I'm good at. And that's definitely what I figured out over these last few years is building a brand and selling is what I am good at and what I'm, I'm fairly passionate about doing. Um, and so I'm f- totally focused on that. And I do what I have to do to build that brand. And I sort of don't necessarily know all the rules that I'm breaking or not breaking to, to do it. So, so it's a
2: blissful ignorance?
1: Absolutely. Sometimes I say it's good to be a dumb blonde. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it really has been amazing. I mean, my distributors will say, you know, you can't put a point of sale display in without doing a temporary price reduction in a grocery store. And I'm like, why not? Well, they just don't do that. And they said, well, we're going to try. And of course they do it, you know, and it's like, if I thought about every rule that there was out there that I had to follow, then I would, it would have taken me a lot longer to get us as big as we are. So... Yes, blissful ignorance is exactly what it is.
2: <laughs> now, How How'd you come up with this idea, though? I mean, who thinks of just doing a, you know, a beverage industry and a Type of beverage that doesn't really exist it's right yeah, now.
1: Yeah, new category. Well, it's a very personal experience. I mean, I am passionate about food and wine, and this is one thing I knew, and that's why um, when I decided to start the new company, that it had to be a food or wine type situation because that is all I care about. Everything I read is about food. I cook. I, you know, Wednesdays are my favorite day. It's the dining session in the New York Times. That's my favorite thing, and I go out to eat a lot. But I also have four children, and so. Because of that, it's really been like half my life I haven't been able to drink alcohol. So I would go into restaurants with my husband and, you know, you spend a lot of money for a good meal. And I was completely left out of the experience because my big choices for pairing beverages for what I was eating was like Coke or iced tea or sparkling water. And that really didn't add any value to the meal. If anything, sometimes it detracted. And then you also just don't feel special. You just don't feel like you're really getting to fully participate. You just kind of felt bad. You would go in and my husband could look at the wine list and there was fifty dollars to $100,000 worth of wine on the wine list. And they're putting all those resources into it. But for people who aren't drinking, they're putting absolutely no resources. And I was like, gosh, this is crazy. And the other fun experience you get to have when you're a pregnant woman walking into a restaurant is the wait staff does not want to be your waiter. I mean, they are not happy to see you because they know their check price is going to be really low. So it was just, that kind of was grating on me for a long time that that was such a, and it just, it just, it honestly hit me one day. I was like, I was kind of messing around with some lavender and I'm like, that would be really good with that chocolate that I had the other day. And I'm like, oh, that's it. You develop a soda, you develop a non-alcoholic beverage that you can pair with food that can be very elegant, sophisticated and have a high price point, you know, so that the wait staff is incentivized to sell it. They're happy that they have something like that and that people who aren't drinking can still feel special. Um, and really feel like they're a part of the experience and, and have an event, you know, and really we experience we want dry to be an event. So I just was at the time my husband worked for Da Vinci Syrups. So I sort of tapped into everybody that was there from the VP of sales to the woman that was in charge of all their education to the food chemist. And I said, how do I do this? How does one go about doing this? And I also had a friend that had a bottled water company and I just tapped into everybody I knew. And the food chemist was the most important person I met. And he told me exactly how you do it. You know, you have to get this kind of water. You have to go deal with these flavor companies. You have to get a refractometer. You have to measure pH balance. You have to do, you know, he just gave me the whole, this is how you do it from, you know, 16 steps, whatever. And at the time he told me, you're going to have to do about probably about a thousand tests for each flavor. Well, I'm like, that's not going to work. I kind of have a little touch of attention deficit disorder. (laughs) I can't imagine that I'm going to be able to do that. But he said, you will. I promise there's no way you'll be able to come up with a formula without doing that much. Um, and he was right. I did at least a thousand tests on each flavor. Um, so you
2: actually set up a lab in your house and started mixing and testing and drinking?
1: Absolutely. And everybody I knew was testing and drinking right along with me. All my kids and I. You know, I went up to a friend's restaurant and had her all her friends drink. What does it, it
2: take to set up a lab like that? I mean, is it expensive? Oh, does it take no. a long time? No,
1: no, no. It was. It's really only three or four pieces of equipment you need. They're not huge. It was probably a thousand dollars total. And you just start dealing with flavor companies and you send, send these flavors. I want this. And I would detail out exactly what I wanted. So the first flavor I actually came up with, my first idea was a basil soda, but I'm like, I don't think the world's ready for basil soda yet. So let's try to do some other things. And so lavender, which was that, you know, the one that I was first excited about, we obviously started with lavender. And then I just kind of did my own personal experience. So kumquats are my favorite fruit. I eat them all the time and I knew that they had that sort of, um, Citrusy flavor, which people would find accessible, but they also had a, almost a touch of bitterness that would be a very unique piece to it. So we tried We decided to kumquat. Um, we decided also on lemongrass, and I decided on lemongrass. It was pretty easy because I was trying to think of something that would go really well with all the Asian style food. There's so much Asian fusion, and lemongrass. I just knew would be would be an excellent one. And then rhubarb, I did because well, once uh, every summer, my grandmother will make me a rhubarb pie. And rhubarb has such a complexity to it. I mean, you can taste apple and plum, and every time I have it, it's a little different. It reminded me of wine, so I thought, excellent rhubarb. Let's try that. We also were going, we're, we're going to do a juniper berry, which would be a lot like a gin and tonic. But that one didn't work out <laughs> in the time frame that I had for myself. We were going to do five flavors, and that one just it didn't, it just wasn't coming together. And to be honest, lavender was terrible when I first started. And I had this very clear vision of my head what it'd be like. It would be soothing, like. Lavender is, and but these were terrible, <laughs> you know. And I had lots of friends trying it, and you know, I literally did a thousand tests, and finally we hit on it, and I finally got each flavor, and I got it. I took it to a group of about six people who owned restaurants or who was somehow in the food business, and I also worked with a chef. She's a pretty well-known chef in Seattle, and I had her come and taste. And I sort of narrowed it down to like the top three that I thought were, and then you know, and then had them all taste them, and we decided from there.
2: Wow. Does it get hard to really judge this stuff? I'd imagine after you're drinking 500 of these drinks, so you'd lose all your judgment. Well, yeah, you sort
1: of do it over a period of, I did it over a period of a couple months. And it was really funny. The funny part about this is that I had the design all done for the bottle. I'd worked with a design firm. I actually had a PR firm all ready to go, but I still didn't have the soda.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So it's everything but the soda.
1: Exactly. It was so funny. I'm like, oh, great. I have this whole company, but no actual product yet. And that was a little, because I knew the concept was right on. I knew that having a sophisticated non-alcoholic beverage, specifically a soda, because I really felt like, the other thing that was so interesting is that if you look at beer and wine and coffee, even bottled water, all of them have exploded with options. I mean, no one ever walks into a restaurant anymore and just orders a Budweiser. I mean, you know, I'm I'm from microbrew country. So it's like, you just don't do that. But we still do that with soda. We still have, what, Coke, 7-Up, maybe a Pepsi or a Diet Pepper, Dr. Pepper, or whatever that is. And you just don't have that many options. And I'm like, this is crazy. This is the one industry that still hasn't exploded with options, you know. And I'm from Seattle. So, of course, we all have lots of beverage options out there. And, and it was just it was really clear to me that this is the time for this kind of thing to really take off. So anyway, that was... That was kind of my thought there as well. So.
2: Great. so now after you get this formula, I remember when I was a kid, my favorite museum in the world was a Coke museum where you could go and sample all the flavors and see the whole history. And there's always this huge mystique of the, you know, secret formula. Did you think like I have to patent this, I have to uh keep it secret, you know, I have to lock it up in some huge vault. Was there anything behind protecting this formula or was it all just, okay, we got a formula, let's go market it. Well, this? we just
1: we have a formula, let's go market it. I mean, yeah, there's the flavors were built specifically for dry. So those, you know, those are the formulas that we use. And then of course the recipe itself is, it's, it can't be patented. I mean, I mean maybe I've, the, what I've found out, I don't think it can be patented, but, um, and really in reality, anybody can make Coke, right? I mean, that's not a big secret anymore. And really that, that concept is kind of goofy in my opinion now, because we can, you've got labs, everybody can go and just deconstruct anything and write, I and mean, we can figure out how things are made. And in the end, really If somebody else wants to make a lemongrass soda, it'll taste different from my lemongrass soda, but it'll still be, you can still call it lemongrass soda, right? So, but I do think that the nice part is that we really did hit on some amazing flavors and we get the most amazing response from them that people are like, wow, you know, this is really good. Or people say, I don't drink soda. And I'm like, just try it. And they try it and they love it. So I do feel like even though we sort of put the cart before the horse while I was doing this, that the flavors just, it just hit. It really worked. And the way I know that worked is that chefs love it. I've only had it like one or two chefs now say no to not bringing dry in. Every time you talk to a chef, they love it. And that was the key for me. I mean, just a personal sort of victory for me was that, and they use it, they cook with it now. They cook with it or they use it in that with like one of the great restaurants in Seattle used it. Um, they floated a cucumber sorbet and the lemongrass soda. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm a part of his tasting menu. Like, whoa. So for me, that was just ex- terribly exciting.
2: Cool. So you told me about the product now. When you thought about early on, like what you need to put this company together, what you come up with, like how much money you need just to get it off the ground and what are some of the kind of key things you have to do first? Like, you know, do you first build the brand? Do you first sell it to restaurants, to distributors? Walk me through that process.
1: Well, it it became really clear that there was the brand I was gonna build was a sophisticated luxury brand, that this is what this was gonna be was a very different brand than any other product that's out there. So the first thing we did, obviously, was the design. We wanted a very sleek bottle that was very unique in design. So if you see the dry bottle, it's very different from any other soda bottle you're going to see out there. It's very modern, very clean. Um, so that you actually him. got it
2: shaped in the whole thing? No, we
1: actually use a stock bottle because if you don't use a stock bottle, then it's very, very expensive. So, and I was trying to do all of this for, at the time, what I thought was going to be $50,000. I was going to start the whole company with my home equity line of credit for $50,000. And... We've ended up being able to capitalize the company with $100,000, and I did end up getting an a SBA loan of 51000 But some of those costs that went into that was first the design. I had to work with some designers, and I met some great designers that had just started their own firm. They came out of a big one out of Seattle and started their own firm, and they really worked with me. And they were amazing. And I think that our brand is incredible and everything they've done. All of our packaging, collateral, all of that stuff has been really, really well done. We get a lot of compliments on that. So that was one sort of expense. And obviously the expense of developing the flavors. That wasn't huge in that I just had to buy some equipment and, and the flavor houses give you the flavors. So they provide those to you free of charge and you just try to work with them. Um,
2: they weren't skeptical about working with someone with no experience in the beverage industry and an uh, entrepreneur.
1: Well, actually, I had some introductions. So that helped. <laughs> I think I had three different people giving me introductions to flavor companies and I think that's what helped. I don't think I would have gotten... I don't think if I had just called up and said, hey, this is what I want to do, they would have been so willing to work with me because they really had to develop some of these flavors. But I had some people who are deep into the business, flavor business that were able to give me good good introductions. And then some of the other costs then were just, well, I wanted... I knew I needed a PR firm. I mean, if you're going to build a brand, you really have to get some good press. You have to get some. You have to get some introductions into the restaurant business. So I knew right away that for this to be a sophisticated product that it really needed to be sold into high-end restaurants, because that's really where my personal experience was, is that I wanted this soda in high-end restaurants and I wanted it served in a champagne flute. I wanted it. So when we developed it, we developed it with all of that stuff in mind. So we developed it, we brought the sweetness levels down significantly, and we varied the acidity levels with each of the flavors so that you had different, vari- kind of like different varietals of wine. So different different ones match with different foods like kumquat has the highest acidity level and it pairs with almost everything. Lavender has the lowest and it pairs well with the fewest amount of things. And then we carbonated it in the style of a champagne so that you could put it in a champagne flute. It would look beautiful. It would, you know, the, the, we have really fine bubbles. So it's a very different than most sodas you try because it's really more like a champagne. It just, it makes the flavors great and the aroma really stand out. So anyway, so we had to do, you know, I knew that that was part of the brand. It was really making it an event. I mean, that part was important to me that when you had a dry soda, it was a event. So if you were at a party or at a great restaurant, it was an event. But it could also be an event if you were home with a sandwich, you know, that it you could have a little spot of sophistication in the day. So I knew I had to build up that. So PR was important. So really just design PR and then the product itself. And the PR firm that we hired really helped get us into all the top restaurants in Seattle. They were well connected. They were a restaurant PR firm. And then it just I mean, then we launched and within four weeks, I was in like 30 of the top restaurants in Seattle. And then that's all the press hit within a few weeks and it just, it kind of went from there. So that's basically, you know, kind of the costs going into it. Oh, and then of course, obviously, to buy the bottles, get them decorated and then pay for all the flavors to get them co-packed and all that stuff. So there was, it was about a hundred thousand dollars to get our first run and launched. Maybe a little, it was probably more like 75,000 because I lasted on a hundred thousand for a <laughs> long time here.
2: Yeah. And then in terms of getting it Getting people to drink it, did you go direct to distributors and hope that they'd sell it to restaurants or you went right to restaurants? Yeah, how yeah, do you do okay, that? So
1: how you do that then is that you, you need a distributor. And I naively thought, this is worse than my you know that I would have a couple of distributors and of course they'd all want to sell because the restaurants would be asking for it. Well, that's not at all how it works. How it works is that it really is the key to a good beverage company is your distributors. Do you have good distributors that are going to be out there selling it for you and getting it in there and doing great customer service for you and getting it in there? So I knew there was two big distributors in Washington and Seattle at the time, and I went to both of them. One was Columbia, one was Alaska. And they both, they're like, no, no, you know, you're just, you're a brand new company. This isn't going to work. It's not going to happen. Come back in a year. Come back when you have a little traction. And I said, all right. So I went and found two small distributors that were just very small and they don't have any sales force. All they do is basically deliver it. So I, you know, went myself into all the high-end restaurants. And, like I said, within a few weeks, we were in all we were in the top thirty restaurants in Seattle, and then grocery stores started calling because it was like, "Hey, you know, we've heard about this," and I was getting tons of emails from people going, "I want to be able to buy it and I was like, "Oh, and I hadn't thought of going into retail for at least a year. This is so crazy what I thought back then it was I was so I was naive. <laughs> but, you know, blissfully so in, in in that case. So we started working with some of the like a we wanted to do just upscale groceries. We were really only doing upscale retailers and there is a couple in Seattle. Whole Foods is one of them. There's a couple others and then there's a QFC which is a high it's a high-end retail but it's a pretty large one in Seattle. So I worked with them. They brought us in right away. I mean, and We started selling really well there and had a lot of sell-through, and that's when we got the attention within two months of Columbia and Alaska again. So with those callbacks to them, they're like, yeah, please come in, please come in, and it was a whole different story. And we decided to go with Alaska at the time just because we felt like they were going to put a lot of resources behind the success of Dry, which they have. They've put tremendous resources and have done a great job. And it's just, it has absolutely taken off from there. So really, you do. Your ticketing distribution is the key, and you have to have really good distributors and mostly what we will work with is wine distributors because wine distributors provide, they go into the same accounts that we go into and we provide for them a unique opportunity. It's a new category of beverages, culinary sodas. It's a very unique, you know, and it's got a high price point. And so we're very attractive to distributors. So we've had a lot of great success very quickly with our distributors. So we, we have the whole West Coast now. So we have all of California, Oregon, and Washington now with three different distributors.
2: Ron, How long have you been in business so far?
1: Since August of last year. Yeah, uh, So
2: very rapid growth. What's very the, rapid growth. <laughs> what's the picture look like now? I mean, how many how many bottles have you sold so far?
1: That's a good we're, uh, We'll say we've done it, about 10,000. So about 10,000 cases. Oh, cases, not yeah. bottles, <laughs> cases. <laughs> so it'll be 24,000 bottles. We're just going to be starting in Oregon in the next few weeks. We launched in Los Angeles in February and launched in San Francisco two weeks ago it's just taking off. And so we actually had anticipated spending this year getting through the rest of the West Coast. Well, we're through the West Coast now. So we're going to look to start expanding nationally over to the East Coast um, this summer, which is way sooner than we had expected. But we're getting calls from major distributors now that are interested in the product. And um, we're getting a lot of great press. We're in two um, national magazines this summer, uh, Bon Appetit and In Style. So that kind of press really causes, you know, is is going to help us quite a bit with our national expansion.
2: And your customer base, I guess, is people, like you were saying, who are pregnant, who don't want to drink alcohol for one reason or another. How have you identified?
1: Actually, our, really our market, well, I mean, obviously pregnant women is is one small part of our market, but really we're targeting um, what I call, there's sort of two targets for us. is And the biggest one, I think, is what I call the sort of foodie people, gourmet. We don't skew as female as I thought we would. Just I get just as many emails and phone calls from men. And that love the product, because really, it's not rocket science. It's a less sweet soda with some really unique flavors. And it's really good. You know, it's just very different from anything else that's on the market. It's not juice based, it's got really low calories, it's only 50 to 70 calories. So it's not heavy. It's just an amazing drink. And so anyway, with that first target market, you know, really, how do you target that market? Well, you go to where they are, which is these, again, the high end restaurants, the high end retailers. So we're really going for that particular market. And if you think about it, it's not just people who aren't drinking alcohol at all. It can be people who are done drinking. So, you know, if you go to a party, you can only drink for the first hour. You can't keep drinking. I mean, at least at my age, you can't. Or if you're, you know, for me and you now I drink one or two glasses of wine with a meal and then I'm done, but I still have several courses left to go. So this product really becomes a great add-on at the end. It's great for catering, great for, you know, the restaurants are finding that they get great add-on for their wait staff who are putting it on, um, you know, that are able to sell it when people are done drinking. So it's, And there's lots of reasons why people don't drink. They're at lunch. Lunch is a huge crowd. Obviously, it's a huge time for us because most people don't have the three martini lunch anymore. It's you don't drink at lunch. I mean, majority of people. And then there's just for whatever, there's lots of reasons why people don't drink at certain times, you know, on medication, training for a marathon, pregnant, whatever it could be, or you just don't drink. There's a lot of people who just don't drink. And then... That target market is then hit on the retail side, really for just when people aren't, I mean, people don't drink all the time, right? You need a non-alcoholic beverage. And so that's what we're finding because it tastes good. They've had a great experience at a restaurant with it. They really want to bring it home and share it. And the second market that really I hadn't planned on, but that has really taken taken it to heart is um, what we call the young hip crowd. Since clearly I'm not young and hip, I wasn't really prepared to kind of market to them, but they're really, I think, um, taken by the the bottle itself, the product, they're using it as mixers. So for instance, why I'm here in New York right now is Hermes did the broken book, big art event, Lori side last night. It was a very tragically hip event that (laughs) I was slightly out of place at, but um, they were using dry, they were serving dry and then also serving it with vodka as a mixer. So, and it was a very hip crowd that was there and they were very into it. And it was, you know, so we're, and a loss, most of, I think 90% of the restaurants that bring us in are also developing drinks based around it because of the unique flavoring and the carbonation. So we kind of have those, both of those markets that we're re- really targeting at this point. So
2: that's pretty exciting. And now we're, we're at a hotel right now or we're at the restaurant right now. You had dinner here last night. Did you approach them about it or are they, can, we, can I order dry right now? <laughs>
1: Can't order it yet, not yet in New York because we don't have distribution here yet. We hope to have distribution here in the next month or two. Yeah. And it's really funny. Sometimes I'll go into a restaurant and I'll um, ask if they have it and they're like, no, I haven't heard of it. Or yeah, I've heard about that, but we don't have it yet. And we're really excited about it. But so last night we gave the waiter a hard time and said, you don't have dry. You haven't heard about dry. This, You know, we tell him about it. And then we sort of came clean and he was really excited about it and said, oh, you got to drop some off for the manager and that kind of thing. So that part is always fun. And it's sometimes fun for me. I'll go into a restaurant and the wait staff won't know who I am, but I'll order a dry. And, and I did have one waiter say, he totally t- totally took credit for the whole story. He's like, yeah, we decided we wanted to bring this product in because we really wanted to give our you know customers an option. We really wanted them to be able to have something to pair with. And he's telling me my whole story back to me. And I'm like, brilliant. That's great. I'll take one. <laughs> so that part's been, it's that part's really fun. I love that the wait staff is really taking ownership of this and really, you know, really pushing it and, and, and are excited about it. And that's the great thing is the wait staff is beginning to realize what an easy sell this is and having such a great time selling it. And it's a great, you know, cause it's retailing for five to $7 a bottle in these restaurants. So it's, good for them. (laughs) Is that
2: tough to throw in though? I mean, I think, you know, if I can't drink one night and I go to a restaurant, I just say, give me a Coke. I don't bother asking what their non-alcoholic beverages are. How do you get people to think about that?
1: Well, it's also menu placement. Menu placement is obviously really is clear. We want to, we want them to be to seeing it on the menu in a really clear place. So a lot of times we're on the cocktail menu or we're on the wine list, you know, so you can kind of see us and they're, they're featuring us. A lot of times the way, like if you order a Coke, say, Hey, we have this other product. Some restaurants are getting rid of all of their other sodas and using dry just as their house soda because they understand it's a culinary soda and they're a high-end restaurant. So they don't want anything else in their restaurants. And that's been great. We've had several restaurants do that. And that's awesome when that happens. Obviously, the sales are great for us then. Also, just building up demand through, or, you know, awareness through press and through the events that we participate in, like that Hermes event. Those are the kind of things that really help. You know, we were the soda at the backstage of the Grammys. So, you know, we get that if you kind of continue to do that kind of stuff, then you really build up that demand and that's where it comes in. But really we do, we look to the wait staff also to really try to sell it in. So
2: Now, like you were saying, the beverage industry has reputation for being horrible and we've had some people on our show who are in it and I've read a lot of stories about it and it seems as though probably 95% of the companies go out of business and even the successful brands, you know, spent years and years on the verge of bankruptcy. Has there been any, you know, real tough angles of this for you that were just really hard to overcome or has it just came together very nicely i'm
1: sure i should say that it's been tough but it hasn't this has just been an incredibly easy company and i'm sure it's not always going to be easy but we have we've not had any doors shut i go into a distributor to a major distributor one meeting they bring us in and that's fairly unheard of i mean i you know i met somebody the other day that um was with our distributor and they're like how long did it take you to get in?" it's taken us three years to get them and i'm like um a meeting <laughs> took like one meeting and you know, it's really because we've created something that people want. And I think we've been really blessed in that area that we really did hit on something. I think our timing is impeccable. And that was, that was a blessing to be able to have that kind of timing, especially with Coke and Pepsi now very obviously trying to be, they're being much more sensitive to the, the nutritional value and you know, the amount of sugar that they're putting into their products and now still, you know, pulling them from the schools. And it's funny because when we go into a restaurant, Almost every time the restaurant will say, "Wow, your timing is so great." We're really starting to have issues with this non-alcoholic side. People are really wanting a lot, so most restaurants have been putting a lot of effort into non-alcoholic cocktails. But the problem with those is, a, they're time and labor intensive for the restaurant, and usually for the customer, they're very calorie laden. So in this sort of you know health conscious world, people don't always want that. So dry is this great, low calorie, all natural, open and pour for the restaurant. So I think that we have been really, really blessed with timing. We have restaurants coming to us. We have restaurants all over the country calling for it. So they're calling their distributors. So now we have distributors calling us. So we haven't experienced any difficulty yet. And the great part is the distributor salespeople are excited about it. They realize this is easy. This is, I can go in and I can sell this in one meeting, no problem. And that's why I knew I had something right from the beginning is I went into all these restaurants. I got very few no's and almost all of them were right then. Yes, bring it in right now. This isn't a second meeting kind of deal. We want it. So no, so far, so good. <laughs>
2: well, it sounds like a really appealing hit you've had here. And, uh, and it sounds very high margin, right? You're selling yeah. for 5 $6 a bottle retail and about yeah. $2 a bottles in stores. Uh, has that spawned competition either from other entrepreneurs or from, you know, these new product departments at Coke and Pepsi are under a lot of pressure too?
1: <laughs> well, um, no, not yet. So, you know, clearly the idea is we need to get moving. We need to get out there and, and get going very quickly we have the ability to do that. We should be nationwide in the next 12 months. And we have the chef support and the chefs are are really backing it and really behind it. And that's obviously helping tremendously too, because that sort of spreads like wildfire. But I think with Coke and Pepsi, I think obviously they're a little bit more slow growth and they're much more into acquisitions of these kind of things versus developing themselves. I think that the interesting thing is that there's a great new market, and it's called the adult soda market. And that's usually a less a less sweet soda. So there's some great examples. Actually, here in New York, like Gus and Fizzy Lizzy are some great examples. And then there's Izzy, Izzy out of Colorado, which is the biggest one. But the market's big now, and it's growing. It's a 15% growth rate and I think $47 million, and it's a very new market. I'm really excited for that market. We're an adult soda for sure, but we're also just a little bit different because we we don't sell into Red Robin or Starbucks or... Um, we're staying only high end and staying very targeted on our market. And I think that's the biggest difference between us is that really, I think your hard part comes down when you're slugging it out and up and down the street markets trying to get in all the little delis and stuff. And we're not doing any of that. So I think that does give us a little bit of a leg up and helps us to define our brand and also to get national very quickly.
2: So what do you need to get national? I mean, I guess the $100,000 financing's round out, <laughs> run out <laughs> we're, now. We're out
1: of that now. Well, we were in the process of raising our Series A round of $750, um, which really could get us to mostly national within the next 12 months. But we're actually, we just are, are oversubscribed now at this point. Just on Friday, I found out we just...
2: Oversubscribed, so we have got overs- more money yes, than so you we've need. we got more
1: money than we need, and we, we're going to hold it open for a couple more weeks and, and just bring in a certain amount. We have quite a bit of interest from venture capitalists that there's certainly an opportunity to do a second round if we feel we need it, which is certainly a possibility. So at this point, though, we're meeting, we're meeting and beating all of our projections and meeting and beating all of our growth, ex, you know, growth experience of what we thought, where we thought we would be. I mean, I, originally when I started my presentation for fundraising, which was only three weeks ago, I said, 750 will get us through the west of the west coast. Well, I had to change that because I'm like, you know, we got through the west coast without 750 and now we really need to be able to launch over onto the east coast. So um, again, it really is about fast growth. The money is there now, so we just need to to move and start working with distributors to get distribution.
2: Uh, so what's your vision now for how big this can grow? Like you said, it's not going to be at every single deli. You know, what are your goals, let's say, over the next year? How many places do you want to be in? What do you think you can ramp sales up to at that point?
1: Um, well, we're looking to ramp our sales up to about $3 million this year, just the year, we've got small goals, just a half a million, but, like I said, we're already meeting and beating our projections so that we may be at more than that at the end of this year. But that was sort of my projections a month ago. <laughs> but they change every day um we're looking to get to about three million in our second year, our second full year. um we'd like to see this be at least a thirty forty million dollar company in the end of you know year five we May be acquired prior to that. There's certainly a good opportunity for that. Um, It's also a cash business, though. I mean, we have great margins, and we just need to build up this brand, and then maybe we blow it out at that point and start going into a lot more restaurants, a lot more retailers, because we're very selective about our retailers. Um, We stay only in high-end. So all of our projections are based on just staying in this high-end deal. But I think after the year three, you sort of start looking at either acquisition or really blowing it out to a lot more, opening it up to more.
2: Do you have a feel for what you'd want to do with that cross? I know I, I no entrepreneur ever likes to answer this question, but I mean, do you just have this ambition to make this into, you know, a standalone company that's going to do a lot of sales or, you know, you're happy if uh, Coke comes on and buys you out? I can't answer track? that question because investors
1: won't <laughs> want to answer it. No, um, no, no. I have a feeling that this is probably an acquisition target. I understand that going into it and that's okay. I love building the brand and I'm happy to take this company where it needs to go, whether that's, you know, me taking it and building it out over the next 10 years as a standalone company, like you said, or it being acquired. I think that it's been really clear what our next step should be this whole way. And I think those steps will become clearer and clearer as we go. And we'll know I have an amazing team that works with me. And uh, and now as we're starting to get a good board of directors. And I think we'll we'll really be able to cross those bridges when we get to them and really make you know, understand, but we're building the company. We know it's an attractive acquisition offer, but we also know it's a great cash business too. I mean, it just is bottom line. We have great margins.
2: So tell me about that team. Did you decide to put together people who are real industry veterans or did you think, Hey, maybe like myself, it's better just to have people with a lot of energy who can take a fresh look at this?
1: I think it was kind of both. So, um, the team that I have pulled together all have beverage experience. Um, sort of in different ways, though. So our first hire was our chief marketing officer, who's Jeanette Thibault. And she came to me back in October. She had read an article that Seattle Magazine did on us. And just she herself spent 12 years in um, advertising and marketing for food and beverage, 15 total. But 12 of those was with food and beverage. So she was very familiar with restaurant side and just the beverage side itself from that angle. And she saw instantly in this article that we had created a new Category A and it had an amazing brand. And she's passionate about building brand like I am. So she contacted me and has spent then the last six months working without a paycheck. <laughs> so she's been very committed and has been an amazing asset. And really her food and beverage background has been has been incredibly um, valuable. And then our chief operating officer is Vince Dignale. And he, did sp- he spent 10 years with Hewlett Packard doing their supply chain. So he has all their best practices that he's bringing to the board. He's a really detailed, organized guy, which you need for your operations. But he also spent time as a chief operating officer for a soda company. So he knew he knew the ins and outs. He knows the whole pro- he knows the whole process. He knows about distribution. He knows about the bottling and the co-packing and the inventory and the, you know, all of that stuff and you know, and how we want to work that. So he was really valuable in that. So but both of them have, especially Jeanette, and then we have two other people too that we hired. Um, one was um with my PR firm that I'd originally worked with, and she was this outstanding person that was the one that got me into all the restaurants and she'd had a lot of beverage experience in the PR side. So I brought her on in Seattle. And then we have an LA uh, director that we brought in who had a lot of beverage experience on the sort of ground marketing, like sort of feed on the street marketing, six years doing that with an advertising company, but for beverage companies. So she had some very unique experience. So really, everybody comes with some great beverage experience, but not so much that they're jaded, <laughs> which I think is the key is to really have that sort of excitement. And so about three or four of those, and Jeanette herself had started a magazine before our two directors, one in Seattle and one in LA, both have dreams and you know aspirations to be entrepreneurs. So, And I think that part is really important. And then Vince himself actually worked as an investment partner for a VC firm. So he knows about bringing deals to the table. He's entrepreneurial in his own way. So I think when you bring a team together at the beginning, everybody has to have a very entrepreneurial spirit. All of these people have been working today without paychecks and they get the value of equity. I mean, they're really getting that. And they're also getting the value of how you do this and how scrappy you are and how you leverage. Leverage is my keyword. I leverage every dollar, every connection, everything we do is leveraged to the hilt. And they all understand that and have an innate um, understanding of that. And then also, I think you have to, at this beginning stage, you have to hire people that just get the job done. There's not a lot of talking about it or bureaucracy. You just get the job done. What is it has to be done? Let's get it done. So as we grow bigger and bigger, you know, we don't that's not going to be so important. We need more people who have, you know, good, strong corporate skills and things like that. But I think at the beginning, it's nice to have people who get the job done. <laughs> so,
2: so now just those next couple of stages of growth, it sounds like you just, you have a lot more dollars to leverage now. And now, you know, it's also a challenge to think, how do you deploy all that capital, you know, at a rate you've never done it before. What are your very next steps just over the next week now that you got the funding pretty much behind you? What are your initiatives?
1: Um, We will start working with the national distributors. We have, you know, we've had some interest from national distributors and I have to continue to follow up with them because I told my investors we will not open another market until the funding is complete. So now that that's available, we really start to put that into place, which may mean that we open up another co-packing facility um, here on the east, in the east. So those are just, you know, right now I'll be meeting now with distributors, you know, national distributors that can get us into five to 10 markets overnight versus, you know, more regional distributors that you want in one or two markets. So that's the plan. And we're going to start, we'll probably hire one more person um, for sure. And then we'll look to maybe a few more hires after that, but probably just one to two more people really to do more sales for us and getting us out there. So that's, yeah, in the next few weeks, it's to talk and getting back to the distributors that have been asking and wanting information and wanting to talk with us and meet with us. so. Back on a plane again <laughs>
2: <laughs> and what's your favorite flavor of the drink?
1: My favorite flavor I have, well Jesus I was sort of like asking what's my favorite kid I have four flavors and four kids <laughs>
2: that's the next question uh,
1: yeah. my favorite kid or my favorite flavor <laughs> no actually um I like them all i if what's ironic is that kumquat was my least favorite in development, but it's the one I drink the most um, and it's also the most popular flavor we sell. Lavender is actually my favorite favorite of just if I was I mean I just that's my favorite flavor Lemongrass is the one I like to drink the most with food. So I don't drink that one on on its own as much, but I drink it with food. And then rhubarb, I just love. It's very thirst-quenching and bold and tart, and I'll grab that one quite a bit. But it's interesting with this is that, and you'll get to try them in a minute, is that everybody has at least two that they really like. There's always two that people really like. The other two they like, or maybe even don't like, there might even be one they don't like, but everybody, it's always two. Everybody has two favorites. (laughs) So I find that amusing. And it's always different. I mean, there isn't, kumquat is our bestseller, but I think that has a lot to do with the fact that it's just the most accessible flavor and it's also the one that pairs well with the most things.
2: All right. Well, thanks a lot for coming on our show. It was really a pleasure.
1: Thank you very much.
0: I hope you enjoy that interview as much as I did. It brought back a lot of memories to revisit this show and just hear the optimism and the kind of grit that you need to go into to start a new company Now, of course, there have been a lot of direct-to-consumer brands and physical products launched by entrepreneurs, but it really struck me how bold Shirell was. And the grit and courage that Shirell had back in 2005, a lot of entrepreneurs weren't willing to take the risk to launch a physical product that goes right to consumers. It just seemed really, really ambitious. Everybody was doing more B2B tech. So really cool to see that Sherelle did that back in 05 and that she's still at it and thriving today. If you're enjoying these episodes, please spread the word. Tell your friends, tweet about it. Tell them to check out VentureVoice.com. Search for it on iTunes. And please leave a review. Go to iTunes. That's where it matters most, even if you don't listen through Apple. And tell people how you like the show. That helps more people discover it. You can also give me your feedback. Just go on Twitter or Instagram and look me up. I'm just at Gregory. I signed up early, got my first name at Gregory, and you can ping me there. Thanks for tuning in. Catch you next time.